Well, good morning again, everyone. Everybody have a good evening. <laughs> Why don't we uh, just, if anyone has anything to share, anything that came up, anything you'd like to want to share about your evening? <laughs> Oh, great, because we want this recorded. (laughs) I had an extremely grumpy evening, and I had an extremely grumpy morning. And so I brought my grumpy self up here, and I sat down to have my very peaceful meditation, and then the damn turkey showed up. (laughs) And for a minute, I was like, what is with the flippin' turkey? And then I just was so in love with that turkey because I thought, you know, that's me this morning. Like, I don't know what its deal is, but I'm like flipping around the building having a total gobbling tantrum. And I just thought, what a perfect example of everything that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Because I really, really wanted to have attitude about the turkey. Just like I really want to have attitude about suffering and all the other shit that I deal with. What attitude do you want to have? What kind of attitude? Well, I I want to act like it doesn't have a place and it doesn't belong and it's wrong. Mm. And I want to push it away and Mm. resist it. And Mm. it shouldn't be like this. And the world Mm. shouldn't be like this. But you know what? It is. Mm -hmm. And so I'm with the turkey this Mm. morning. And just for a moment, uh, as as, uh, to anchor it, for a moment, and it's good that you can have a a sense of humor about it. Like I said, that changes everything. But just for a moment, um, hold all your grumpiness and really let yourself go inside, uh, Sherry, and just really... Honor all the, honor grumpy Buddha in there. And she just needs some tenderness and patience. It's okay to be grumpy. It's okay to be human. Don't have to push. Uh, Grumpy is very, very close to despair, Mm -hmm. which is very, very close to laughter. It's just amazing. How it all flows around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and also despair is very close to caring. Yeah. Go underneath to that place that cares. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much for letting me vent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. I think everyone learns and appreciates from that. Anyone else want to share anything? I can see from what you have up on the board that you're going towards the very thing that I want to comment on. I've always found that in the most, the moments of greatest misfortune, that they hold in them the potential of the greatest gift. And so it's become such a pattern in me that I've actually always gone to the place that when the moment of misfortune occurs, the first thought that occurs is, where's the gift? Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about that is, it's not a demand, it's an invitation, it's a receptivity, it's, it's kind of a welcoming. Mm-hmm. And what I find is that that means that, first of all, I go through the misfortune with less of a sense of dread and less of a sense of, this is bottomless. 
and more a sense that there's an unfolding that's about to occur that's going to not only balance it, but transform it. So transformative resilience, I think, probably has that meaning. Because what it does, in, in my experience, both personal and I think actually at the social level too, is that it takes you or your entire society up to a level that you would never have been without the misfortune, which doesn't mean that you welcome the misfortune. It just means that you're able to make use of it. And so my sense is that that's some of what we're leading to today. But I, I think even the, the, all the stages that Kubler-Ross talks about of you know denial and grief and anger and all of that, that yes, you go through those, but you come out the other side not where you began before the, before the blow, before the loss. You somehow come to a place of deeper strength and deeper insight an ability to approach your life that's um, more effective mm-hmm. somehow than when you began. Yeah. Well, well said. That is what, excuse me, that what we will be focusing mm-hmm. on. It's really not, but the first step is to be able to hold whatever you're experiencing in a different way, in sort of in a, in a peaceful uh, way in a way that you can just uh, be with it and allow it to be there and notice it without getting totally engaged in it. Then, can you use it as a form of learning and growth, uh, and uh, to find new purpose and meaning in life? That's what we're going to dive into tonight. But I think that presencing skills, the presencing, is really vital. Um, and I think from this point forward, rather than calling it purposing, we're going to call it turkeying. So that <laughs> <laughs> how do we use the turkeys in our lives <laughs> to uh, to do that? But we're going to get into that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And, and just a comment that that is uh, that's the basic approach of what the Buddha was trying to communicate. He said he started out with the first noble truth, there's suffering. And he said, the more you can um, understand how to process your suffering and not be afraid to look at that fact, that he taught suffering and the end of suffering. And that when you open, learn to open to suffering and see where it comes from, there's a possibility of the highest happiness. So it's, it's not... A mistake it's part of the program in this curriculum that we're given you know the the human realm is supposed to be the optimal realm to wake up even better than the than the heavenly realms because it has a balance and certainly better than the than the lower realms because it has a balance of suffering and joy and if it was only joy then you'd be lost in La La Land, uh, the big La La Land, uh, and wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't have the compassion to want to wake up. If it's only suffering, that gets uh, overwhelming. But just, just the right amount, so you can learn how to wake up to it and also see all the beauty and the joy. That's where the Any other final comments? Just a, a question, maybe. Um, how many of you actually sort of uh, were, were aware of 
last night when you were inside your resilient growth zone, so to speak, when you were outside your resilient growth zone, uh, just sort of surface that. And how many of you sort of consciously thought about using some skills that we focused on? And would you, anybody like to share anything about that? I saw can't remember somebody back there. Mark. I was thinking a lot about communicating what we're learning to my family and, uh, I got home and uh, started talking about some of it with my wife and looking, you know, showing her the diagram. And uh, she had a annoyingly insightful comment that uh, <laughs> I that I I live in the two zones outside. Mm. I always live I live in the high zone and the low zone. And I said, "Yeah, you're right." And I took a pencil, and my line was one that went up and down like this. Mm-hmm like a scribble up and down, always jumping from one to the other. I also wanted to say that I you, came I, here... I just want, I'm wondering, uh, before you just say, okay, that's where you always live, don't, you, you might uh, open it to not miss the times that you're not in those. Mm-hmm. So watch out for the word always. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because there's you're not living. It seems like you're in. in you're, you're not freaking out or imploding <laughs> right now. Uh, there are probably many moments where you don't. And and the more you can acknowledge those, the more you can see that you have that capacity too. Yeah. So thank you. Sorry, thank I you. just uh, no. That yeah, which goes back to, to the other thing. The, uh, the in the handout about the, uh, the distractions and. Uh, mm-hmm. As an aside, I just want to say I came here this morning and I saw the turkeys running around and the toms in their full regalia and their harems around them. And I, like I said, there must be some dharma in the turkeys. Like what could the turkeys teach us? Because they're here, not about an accident. And thank you for providing that. You've answered my question. They're teachers too. Absolutely. Um. Well, I, I guess the thing that surprised me is that um, I'd felt I, like I was in the resilient zone when I came here, and the exercises yesterday um, touched on a lot of sadness that, I, that I've been working really intentionally on for at least the last year. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've also been following a lot of conversations around climate change, and I, I know that there's this... this really large well of grief and, and sadness around that. And so um, that, that's, it, it feels like that brought me right to the edge of my resilience to, to touch that again. Um, and so that's, that's something that I'm, I'm still feeling this morning as well. Thank you. Again, that is what we're going to try to dive more deeply into today. But uh, there's so many of, I assume everyone here has either a more direct or indirect relationship to that, that sense of grief of of what's happening. Um, And one of the things about grief is we have to allow ourselves to grieve. Um, That's part of that. And we often don't. um, And that's when it hangs on forever. Uh, Or again, we, we end up harming ourselves, harming others. Um, so uh, how do we hold grief? We'll talk about that and sort of help, hope that that uh, gets at that issue. Other comments? I'd, I'd like to just comment and also in a way of just deep acknowledgement for really how rigorous and how 
deep yesterday's experiences were when you really take it in of how much there is given to us here on earth with our playbook and this curriculum. Um, so just the, the, the elegance and the depth of the ordering um, all to the true taking refuge. Um, that all this is available to us. So I'm just feeling the gratitude for that. And then also, with greatest humility, how hard it is to be here. I mean, this sometimes this is just excruciatingly difficult. And I have to mm-hmm. keep remembering, you know, if you think this is hard and you're feeling it, it's because it is. Just remember, you know, just there's something soothing and calming about just knowing if you think this is really tough. But it's also... Um, I marvel like we have all these practices, but my gosh, every moment it's the act of will. You know, the human will, that will, like you can taste it, to will that you will not, that you will bring yourself back and you will use the practices. I will, you know, <laughs> the, the will of the human. I just wanted to comment on that. It's just very, very profound, the layout. And also just realizing, just feeling the implicate, the, the ordering, that you can't really go deeply into the feeling from a spiritual standpoint till you've truly regrounded, recentered, so that you have the capacity to be able to really be with it without the freak out, you know, of the of the depth and intensity of the emotions. Then you can just work with it, like really truly work with it then. I've always thought that, uh, and I think all of you should just say thank you to yourselves. You're the bravest people in the world. That people come to retreats like this are so brave, um, and just just give you that yourself that thanks, that appreciation. It's just such a brave thing to do to be able to look at yourself and stay with it. Uh, I mean, I want uh, all of us in the middle of a retreat. We want to go somewhere else and go, you know, leave and drive down, you know, to, to the ice cream parlor or whatever. Um, so it really, it, it, you just really have to give yourself a lot of credit for what you're doing. You really should. Any other final comments? I had an insight. I think this morning, I did practice last night. I uh, I don't get a signal here, so I didn't know about my evening plans until I got to where I had a signal and my plans canceled and I went right into the story of my whole life in California as a failure. Um, but I was able to be with that. I let myself have a few screams in my car. So that was me screaming in the car. And And then just, okay, this is just a moment. This is just a moment, and now you have an evening, and maybe there, what would you like to do? Um, and it was okay. Um, it wasn't great, but it was okay. And then this morning, really what came to me as I was listening to people checking in this morning is that what I've been holding is that grief and suffering equal failure. Mm. So if I'm not just... Equanimous all the time, no, mm-hmm. let me change that word. If I'm not happy or upbeat <laughs> or really organized and on t- I'm failing. And grief and suffering are a part of life and they're messy. And I, I thought I had embraced that life was messy, but I, I'm seeing 
that I haven't. And so I haven't even allowed myself the space of my own grief and suffering with dignity. Mm-hmm. And I see it differently now after mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you. Um, so we are going to sort of take the next step, if you will, um, uh, and, and talk about how, how to move how, once you're holding the grief, the suffering, uh, maybe a little lighter um, or a little little bit more distance from it. Can you use it as a learning experience to learn about yourself, to learn about the world, uh, and find new meaning and purpose in things through the suffering, through the adversity, and in fact find ways to move towards joy and uh, a real meaningful life and feelings of satisfaction. So we call it purposing, call it whatever you want, but really it's a matter of turning towards, learning how to turn towards the adversity rather than running from it, denying it, forcing it down somewhere where we don't have to feel it. Turning towards and learning uh, how to use it as a what I call a, a transformational catalyst in your life. And we heard that already this morning, that every adversity offers something to us. What is it that it offers to you? Um, and is there a way to use it to actually find new meaning and new purpose and new commitment uh, in your life that actually increases your well-being? Um, I just put this little chart on the board. Uh, this is by Stephen Joseph, who I always thought was was really great. So we we all have sort of this normal level of functioning, and we're you know we might be within our resilient growth zone much of the time, and then we're bounced out. You know we have this, and then some sort of real traumatic event comes down, and boom, we're we're sort of stuck down in this dysregulation um, for a while. Most of us always are able with, through time or quickly. Uh, to sort of bounce back Oops. to our previous level of functioning. Apparently the discussion's over. But <laughs> um, but I'm going to continue anyway. Um, uh, so we call, it, the normal vision of this is resilience. You know, we're resilient if we bounce back to where we were before. Um, and uh, I've always, not, that, that's true, that should be sort of the baseline if you will, that's what we want to do. Uh, but I think about, again, uh, we were talking about this, I think, on Friday, that all of the, uh, the children who are now adults who have experienced adverse childhood experiences, do we want them to bounce back to that? Um, to all of us who are holding on to these uh, feelings and these thoughts that are causing us to, uh, so much pain and suffering, is that what we want to bounce back to? Um, or do we want to actually be able to sort of move forward in some ways? And so some people, rather than bouncing back, and I don't want to denigrate the, the, the idea of bouncing back, uh, there's some wonderful books called that, um, uh, Linda Graham and others, but um, some people actually use the traumatic event to actually increase their well-being as a, an, uh, an experience in psychology. It's often called post-traumatic growth. Uh, we call it adversity-based growth. Um, but it's t- learning how to turn towards 
the adversity, the suffering, the grief you're feeling, and use it to find new meaning and purpose in your life, um, and uh, and then move towards joy and happiness. So this requires a choice. Uh, and I th- think what we heard to, uh, already this morning is we're all struggling with this choice. How do I make it? How do I keep it? What, is it? what does it mean? What do I have to give up in order to make the choice? Because often we're giving up a view of ourselves and the world that we've held on to for a long period of time. Uh, and so we have to give that up. And that's, uh, that's often, again, like we've talked about a couple days ago, what trauma means. We have these core assumptions and beliefs about the world and ourselves, and some event comes along and sort of shatters them or, is complete, or very seriously uh, uh, threatens them, and that's what causes so much of our grief. So we, we have to be, able to, to be able to move beyond that, to have the choice to give that up. And often, after, as we're going through this, or after, it, it, it's different for each person, um, uh, you have to grieve. You have to grieve what you've lost, allow yourself to grieve, and we'll talk a little bit about that soon. Um, but, um, and, uh, and then make that choice to continue. You know? uh, and sometimes it's not an immediate choice. I mean, you might make the choice and you can persist for a little bit and then you backtrack and then you go forward. And just allow all that to be. The more you can notice what's happening, and allow it to be, the better. When you push, when you pull, when you tight, hold on tight, uh, is when things uh, can get a little difficult. So I'd like to start by, we're going to dig into these, these tools, uh, some tools to do that. Um, but I want to start by reading a poem, uh, just to sort of provide a context for this. I like these things. Uh, this is called On Commitment. Um, Until one is committed, there is always hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. There is only one elemental truth. The ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. The moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help that would never otherwise occurred. A whole stream of events, issues, and and merges from the decision raising to one's favor all manner of unforeseen accidents and meetings, and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed of, are likely to come our way. Whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic to it. That's Goethe. So, Goethe. Right, yeah. Um, And I think it's... uh, W.H. Um, Murray, yeah. from the Scottish Himalayan Expedition. Is that right? That's what it was. What? Was that when it was written? That, that's who wrote the whole thing. The last two lines are from Goethe. Yeah, that's right. That's are right. you saying that, that Goethe didn't do all of the previous He just wrote, I, I have learned a deep respect from one of Goethe's couplets, boldness, yeah, yeah. whatever you can do or dream you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and, and magic in it. W.H. Murray, Scottish Himalayan Expedition. Yeah, yeah that's I know about it. So I want to start with an exercise. Um, 
uh, we James asked us a couple of days ago, but let, I want want you to sort of uh, uh, again, and if you would maybe just uh, go inside to to do this exercise. It won't be that long. The, the first part of it. So just sit comfortably if you can, and in a sort of relaxed position, centered yourself. And just watch yourself breathing. You can leave your eyes open. You can close your eyes. You can stand if you'd like. Um, And just take a few moments to settle in. Notice what's happening within you. Sensations, thoughts, emotions, just notice it without becoming attached, without trying to change anything. Just become present. If you're willing, I'd like you to identify one or two examples that come to mind of times when you used an adversity to learn and grow and make some changes, some positive changes in your life. It have been when you were ill and decided to get more exercise or eat better. Else you knew had an illness and you decided to change the way you lived, the way you you op, you functioned. Small, they can be large. Just try to identify one or two times when you used adversity to learn and grow. And change. Thought about things and you functioned. You have one or two. Choose one to focus on. And try to identify or think about how you decided to make the change. How is it that you decided to use that event, those circumstances, that experience to learn and grow and change something you were thinking about yourself or others or something you were doing. If you can identify how it is you identified your goal, how did you identify what you were going to do after you decided to make a change?
Also, how did you get yourself motivated to make the change? And how did you keep yourself motivated to make the change? Finally, how did you know you were making progress? How did you know you were moving in the direction you wanted to move? Something to just notice about yourself and let yourself feel good about is that if you found an event in your life, an experience where you actually used it to learn and grow and increase your well-being in some way, you already know how to do this. You already know how to do this. yourself some loving kindness for that. And just for a few seconds, go back to your breath and just watch yourself breathing. And then when you're ready, you can come back to the room. If it's okay with everyone, I'd like you to find a threesome, a triad, to just share what you came up with. What experience did you identify? How did you decide to make a change? Uh, how did you set your goals? Uh, how did you just keep yourself motivated? And how did you know you were making progress? So let's just share for a few minutes. Okay. If I can have your attention. You can stay where you are. You don't have to move around if you don't want to. But uh, I'd like to just get a little, uh, allow anyone who wants to uh, share anything that came up to, to do that. Then we'll go a little deeper into this exercise. With, um, the with the same threesomes, if that's okay. You can switch around if you want, but you don't have to change now. You can just sort of stay there. But has anybody, anything come up for anyone that you'd like to share? Any, anything that particularly uh, obvious, important? <laughs> um, oh. So we were talking about something you said, Bob, in the beginning about trauma. You said in the resilience zone and how kids can have a, a narrower band and as we grow up and be pretty healthy, hopefully, it's wider and as we're getting older, it can narrow down again. Sort of cumulative effect. So we're just wondering, repetitive trauma shrinking so that you might spike where if you were thicker, you'd be in your resilience zone. 
And I'm not sure what my question was about that. If you could maybe just address mm-hmm. that yeah. a little bit. Well, that, that's, that's very accurate, I think, especially uh, kids and adults, but certainly kids who have been traumatized as youth. They're, as we talked about, basically their brain contracts, their body contracts to protect themselves, and it, de- it depresses brain development. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so they don't learn as well, et cetera. That's why you see them make, so their, their resilient growth zone is much smaller, so to speak. They're much more able, likely to get bounced outside quickly, so that's why you see ch- children, youth who have had ad- experienced adverse childhood experiences uh, doing things that don't seem too wise, um, getting involved with crime and other sorts of things. It's just uh, because actually it's a depressing, depressing of the, the brain development. Um, and as we get older, uh, and even as those children can ex- develop those skills, et cetera, they, they can expand that. It usually requires very close supportive relationships um, uh, and nurturing and caring uh, so they can relax and allow their, their brain functions to begin to pick up. Um, but as we get older, again, sometimes if we find ourselves more isolated or we don't have the stamina, et cetera, some, some older folks can become less resilient, if you will. Um, uh, not all, though. You know, some become more resilient. You know? So there's no single pattern, but um, we have seen you know, more vulnerability in seniors uh, and, uh, and especially those that are isolated or don't have much of a social support network. So, Any other things that popped up about your learning experience, what you learned about your ability to turn towards and use adversity to learn and grow? Anything that stood out? Go ahead. Let's give Nan a hand. Good. Thank you, Nan. <laughs> You know, I, I think in an ideal world, these kinds of experiences would come along one at a time. <laughs> and, and they would also come with the luxury of time so that we could do this all beautifully at our own pace. And, um, and that doesn't always happen. And, and so it leaves me thinking, it, it, really the skill then is just to ground, 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 and take little bite-sized pieces, and then just keep grounding? Mm -hmm. That's a question, but not really a question. It's a statement. It's also um, anger at having borne witness to a lot of people that are trying to do this and me. (laughs) So is is that it? Is that the strategy that the event happens, and then another one comes, and then another one comes, and then another one comes? And so we can't really do this until we have that center. And holding that center in the midst of that unrelenting, incomprehensible, painful event is a really hard thing for people to do. And what I hear so much is, where's the off switch? A lot of my clients talk about, I just need the world to stop for a minute. And the way I'm translating that in my mind as we're talking is that what they're telling me is, I've lost ground. It's called life. Right. <laughs> and uh, one, one way that you might think of it is that uh, it's not... Uh, it's true that sometimes we need to take space to just process and digest and not bypass or, or, or hurry up. 
but I would be careful not to think that unless I have time to keep to process the first before the next one comes that uh, you're learning all the time and as you get more and more um, uh, trusting in your capacity to meet and sometimes there are major ones like perhaps that you thought wow I got through that uh, that each time you do that you have a greater capacity and more confidence that you can do it so I think it's they're both true sometimes we need space for a major trauma to be processed but also we're learning along the way and we're getting stronger and stronger so that um, you know it's like the martial artist who uh, who practices very diligently for uh, for quite some time and then you can have three guys flying at him and he's going <laughs> and there's that's all part of the process too yeah I, I, I agree with that and I think one way to think about it is just uh, I don't know if you or anybody else has ever done strength training but when you lift weights you actually get weaker initially it, it you know it really puts some uh, some problems into your arm, and it's only through then resting a little bit, but then doing it again, etc., that you actually build strength. So the stress actually is increasing. It's what increases your strength, your capacity to deal with issues. So that's one way to, to look at that. Well, we can develop more and more capacity if we come in and try to stay with the right perspective, use those skills, etc., and notice, oh, I'm not now, that's okay. That's just the way it is. Now I am, you know, and just sort of notice it as it as you as you go along. There, there's always turkeys coming down the hill, you know. That's life. So, uh, especially at Spirit Rock, but uh, but it's also important to know when you need. Let's take one more question. But I think it's also important to remember that some people don't get stronger. Some people get weaker and weaker with loss after loss. And I know that's what we're talking about is resilience and how to get stronger. But some people just don't. I know when I was at Auschwitz uh, five years ago, I was walking around with a private uh, tour guide. And you're walking on the soil that's human ash. You know, the top soil is basically human ash. And I was thinking, I never would have made it out of here. And I know a lot of people did, but I wouldn't have had the resilience. I know myself well enough that I would have gone out of there. Some people did, including a psychiatrist who wrote about man's search for meaning. But um, it doesn't have to be Auschwitz. It can be life coming again and again and again. And sometimes you just don't bounce back. And that's sad, but also the truth for some people. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the only thought I have on that is the more we can help people build the skills early on um, uh, and including those supportive relationships, those circles of support, etc., uh, the, the, the better. Victor Frankel's the psychiatrist you're talking about and you know he his his perspective on that is that even those who didn't survive at Auschwitz, um, uh, those who handled it better had a particular way of viewing the world. And it wasn't about what they did physically or otherwise. It was just their perspective on the will, which was very much sort of along the lines of the Dharma, that you know they had a, a distance from it. They didn't take it personally. They just saw a, a, a meaning in it, a meaning and uh, a way of living with it that they found meaning and direction through that adversity. That's how they 
they seem to do better even in the midst of all that horrible thing. So that at its core, that's really what we're talking about. And yes, especially if you've had adverse experiences in your life or you don't have a social support system, you don't have that strength and, or you've experienced systemic racism and uh, economic racist, uh, oppression, et cetera, it's much harder. But that's why we think if you can get out there, if we can start a, a movement to build those skills, build that awareness uh, early on, we'll have a much better, more people will have a better chance of, of doing that. So let's take this one step further, if you're willing. Um, and then we'll take a break after this experience. So, um, And again, if I invite you all to sort of just go inside for just a few uh, minutes. We won't do this for very long, but just sort of center yourself in a comfortable and relaxed position, yet uh, sort of keep yourself erect, dignified, and just start by following your breath, watching yourself breathing for a few minutes, and just notice the breath as it enters your body, fills your lungs and your diaphragm, and leaves your body. Just become aware of any other sensations that you might feel, noises that you're hearing. Just become aware that you're there, that you're alive, while you try to follow your breath. I'd like you to bring to mind a particularly distressing or painful situation or experience you've recently had, or maybe one you're in the midst of right now. Hold that just with some distance. Just know it's there. Try to identify the thoughts you're telling yourself about this situation that is leading to the distress you're feeling? What stories are you telling yourself now about yourself, about other people, about the world that are leading to this sense of distress or grief or pain? Now, if you're willing, I invite you to reimagine the situation. Ask your wiser self if there's some way you could use this experience, this situation, to learn about yourself, to learn about the world around you, to grow from it, 
and to find new meaning and purpose in life. you do that, you could also look back on what you just experienced, the way you learned and growed and you find new meaning in life from some other experience in your life. Can you use that same process here? How, how might you be able to use the same process here? a way to use this distressing experience to learn and grow and find new meaning in life. And that might mean, is there a way for you to increase your connection with other people or the natural environment? A way to enhance the caring, the caring you give to others or the natural environment? And you contribute to others or the natural environment in some way. How could you learn, use this experience to learn and grow and find new meaning in life? Ready? I just invite you to try to summarize what you can learn about yourself, what you can learn about the world around you, and how you can go about doing that through this distressing experience how you can keep yourself motivated to continue to focus on that, to find new meaning and purpose and joy in some way. Meaning and purpose through this experience. Say thank you to yourself for the opportunity to learn about yourself, to learn how you can use adversity grow and find meaning. And when you're ready, you can come back to the room. I would like to have a purpose today. I would like to have a purpose today. I don't want to wait and do little bits at a time. I want to do something now, right now, today. And I would like to add to the agenda that we adopt the new term for climate change and call it protecting the planet or protecting the earth. Here, here. Somebody second that, please. Here, here. I, I, four I 14th it. Like the water protectors. Well, it, if I could uh, follow up on that a little bit, you know, the, the more all of us as we uh, eat lunch, uh, is whatever we do today can think about, you know, what systems are we part of? How might we be affecting those systems? And what can we do to do no harm? 
and or restore, do good for those systems. And that you're free to make that choice anytime. So as you eat your lunch, as you, you know, use something, as you buy something, let's make that commitment. What was the experience like? Anybody willing to share? Could you imagine, could you see yourself learning and growing and find new meaning and purpose in the distressing event you chose? I, I chose a pretty distressing event, and while I know in the abs- I have experience with distressing events leading to positive outcomes, I don't think I have been willing or have looked at it with so much intention that, oh, while it's going on, I can look for a way to make this, you know, to find a positive outcome of this. So that's new for me. Thank you. Let me also suggest that my experience personally, and I think most of our experience, has been that the distressing event, the distress, doesn't ever go away. (laughs) It's not about trying to eliminate the event. It's about uh, altering the way we see it and perceive it. So often that learning and growth and new meaning doesn't come right away. It takes a while. Uh, and the people who do this, and, and, and when you really turn towards adversity in this way and use it to learn and grow and find new meaning and purpose, that distress is always there. That, in fact, is what keeps you motivated often. Uh, and you touch it sometimes, you go back and touch it, but in a different way, more gently, uh, without becoming attached again, and then you can move on again. So it's not about... I'm going to get rid of this. This is no longer going to be a distressing event. It's that I can now look at it in a different way and I can learn something about myself from it. I can learn something about how I relate to other people uh, or how I interpret the world, world and what I can do in my life. So it's a, it's a, but, but the distress might still be there. Yeah, it, it might still be there. With something like climate change, right. that's not going away. But I also, the, how you hold it, it doesn't always have to be held as distressing right now. Right. It was distressing. It's, at times, it's been processed. It's part of your, your growing, and it might be reactivated at times, but uh, the way you hold it right. will change its impact on you. So... Mm-hmm. Um, but remembering also that you have done this before. We have all done it, and many multiple times, often to the extent we don't even think about it, just something we sort of did and we haven't reflected. Just remember, just sort of trying to bring that up in our minds again. We have this capacity. We've done it. Yes, this distressing may, it may be way more than you know the, the time in which the distressing event in which we did it in the past, but just realize that we have this capacity to care for ourselves and deal, uh, respond to the world in this way within us. Uh, so it, it's really helpful. Go ahead. Um, yeah, just to piggyback on that. Yesterday, I think when we were doing a lot of the self-compassion and I had my hand on my heart quite a bit, um, by the end of the day, uh, I went home. I was so exhausted last night. But when I went to sleep... 
I was telling these guys, I, I'm not proud to admit I've carried so much hatred for our current president, so much hatred. And it doesn't feel good, obviously. It, it uh, makes me sick and it makes me isolate, as I've said before. Um, but I had this dream that I was sitting with Trump last night, and it was so profound. He was just this simple little kid sitting next to me, and he offered me a piece of fruit that he had already half eaten, and I took it and I ate from it. And I just I could kind of cry, but I just I sat there with him. And all of us were innocent as children. Things have happened to us, and we've played roles, and we're responsible much of the time. But there was this connection between our heart spaces. So that in the dream, I then went to my friends and other people who also hate him, and I said, no, something is different. There's also something else in there. And I can't even believe I'm saying it, but I felt like a love with him, a, a kindred uh, connection. And uh, I think the compassion for myself may have played a role in how I got to that space in my mm -hmm. dream. I'm not sure, but... Mm -hmm. um, it definitely, I have a, a shift today mm. uh, from the hatred mm, to just rather figuring out what I want to do with it mm -hmm. and uh, not just putting it all on him and hating that object. That's beautiful. Good. Yeah. Thank you it's so like, much. It's uh, like Jesus saying, love your enemies. That, that, uh, what, a, what an amazing, profound um, task to somehow shift it, but you realize that you're the one that's being eaten alive with, with the hatred. I, I love this, uh, this line from Desmond Tutu, who is the architect of reconciliation after apartheid. And he says, uh, forgiveness is the highest form of self-interest. I need to forgive so that my own anger and lust for revenge does not corrode my own being. And the image in uh, in in uh, in the Buddha Dharma is uh, holding on to anger and hatred is like picking up a hot coal and throwing it at somebody and not realizing you're the one that's getting burned as you pick it up, or or drinking poison and hoping somebody else will get sick. We're the ones that are eaten by by our our hatred. And it's a big task because we feel it so, we feel so, we care so much. But what a, an, a dramatic transformation that was. I think it's also a couple other comments that you, you made I thought were very appropriate that we can develop that compassion for others if we sort of ask ourselves not what's wrong with them, but what happened to them. What happened to Donald mm. Trump in his life that led to this kind of... And we just get a different perspective as opposed to this is an evil bad guy or whatever it is we're thinking. That one question often just changes our perspective. Not what what's wrong with them, but what happened to them just might allow you a little more space to sort of figure out how you can respond without that or burning yourself, so to speak, and how you can respond effectively. But again... We're not suggesting don't speak truth to, to power, but um, in a way that you're not burned and you might even help otherwise. I'm at a place right now that I almost always get to in residential retreats to where you know I'll arrive kind of exhausted and depressed and, and then 
there's some there's moments of insight and awakening and I get re- some release and I'm happy and and then that goes into like joy and excitement and then from there I go into agitation and I'm like hypomanic you know mm-hmm. I'm I, I'm too full and I can't sit still and I'm I'm making all these speeches in my head <laughs> teaching everybody stuff you know and I I just can't you know and I I I can't what you're just that gesture you just made I can't yeah I can't do that or it seems hard to do joy ha- has just like compassion needs to be held in equanimity joy needs to be held in equanimity yes. otherwise the near enemy of joy is exuberance um over exuberance and you get spun out yes and so that's where you know that that uh the the zone uh, the bigger you, the bigger zone you have, it can hold the joy, it can hold the sorrow, and the, what ma- I think what makes that zone bigger is practice at balance and seeing it's all coming and going. Your highs will come and go while they're there. Enjoy them, but be grounded. Your lows will come and grow uh, and go while they're there. Learn as much as you can from it. But find a place of centeredness and balance that can that can hold both mm. ends of it. Yeah, I haven't found that place yet. You don't don't undersell yourself though, because you can invite it R- right now. You can invite. That's what the self, one part of self compassion is, in in the including in the uh, when it gets high as well. But you can call on it. May I have balance right now? It's even just inviting your mind to go to that channel. May I have balance? May I stay grounded in my joy? May I have, may I find a center in the, in the midst of all of this? Your mind is very um, amenable to suggestions. And if you say to yourself, oh, I'm somebody that can't find equanimity in the middle of, the jo- of joy, that's what you your your world has created. But if you say, "Oh, I'm someone who's learning more and more to find balance in the middle of my joys and my sorrows," there's that possibility. No, no, thank you. I'd like to ask you to take one more step now. Just uh, we're not going to necessarily do this in, in an exercise, but or in uh, triads, but. Just sort of think for a moment, what would you have had to give up in terms of how you think about yourself, the stories you're telling yourself about the world of yourself, to really use the distressing experience to learn and grow and find new meaning and purpose? Is there something that you would have to give up that is particularly painful or distressing? control can can you ask her to Um, a false sense of control you know if I can surrender to I'm I'm in this river and it's moving can I just surrender can I um, flow with this and allow it to teach me thank you Instead instead of pushing the river like I always do thank you anyone else have any thoughts
I'd lose my place to hide. Mm. I'd have to start showing up more often. Mm. Thank you. Else, what would you have to give up? Independence, and that I can do it myself. Um, after spending many years to achieve a level of independence and competence, it's almost like a pinnacle to almost break that open. And, and recognizing, of course, we're all related interdependently, and we learn and we support each other. That's been an area of um, two discrete separate entities that really has required a lot of thought, meditation, discussion to recognize that we aren't these separate beings. And not just individually, my heart really hurts at such at the global level now of this independence, particularly in our country, that we've, we've spent many, many years to develop ourselves as individually, to be competent as individuals, to accomplish individually, collectively, of course, but it's a huge, huge paradigm shift to not be living linearly, vertically, but interrelatedly. And when I say that, I truly mean interrelatedly. And it's in the fabric of how we walk our lives day to day, not just isolated. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that, that is so true, and especially in our culture where we're told and taught to be Individuals. I mean, we, it's extreme individualism is the culture that we live in, uh, and it's, it cre- creates a big. It's going to take a big change in that sense, uh, at least for many of us. But um, can I just ask you? Do you really think it's true that you'd actually have to give up your individual capacity, your individual? Listen to back there. Um, uh, it, you know, is it really, really true, or is there some way you could? accomplish or be the person you want to without also giving up all that or that it would look differently you'd feel you'd hold that sense of individualism differently i think it's what you're saying you hold it differently it's when you where i'm at with it it's it's when you have that full integration you know the Mm -hmm. integration you one needs to understand themselves to bring to the whole um so I would agree with you. I don't think you do really let, uh, give up that identity. I think what you're giving up, what I'm giving up, is my attachment to the definition of uh-huh. that okay. identity of being individual. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Something you. that I held very, very dear for a very long time for many reasons, which is irrelevant now. Mm. So, there's, so the next layer underneath that is the sadness, is the grief, it's the loss, it's the... Who am I? Um, and as that dissipates and breaks apart and goes where it needs to go, then seeing how all of that kind of just reforms itself into the being that you need to be when you need to be it in order to be an individual, because we are, then to participate with everybody collectively. And who knows well how that happens? Maybe that's changing a behavior. Maybe that's a, maybe it's a position of how one presents themselves. Maybe it's a way of how you inter interrelate with the group on a level of energy versus being very assertive versus maybe being more quiet. Many many forms of that. 
of what's required at the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, just a couple of comments, and then I want to take it one step further. Um, that we need to continue to ask ourselves, is that really true? And what we think we're having to give up. Uh, or at least, is it true in the way we're defining, as you suggested, what we need to give up? It might be that it's not true, or it's actually just the way in which we're thinking about it, then we realize if we, if we, have a, we hold it in a different way, it's actually not giving something important up. We're adding to it. We're expanding what we're holding. But we have to keep asking ourselves. You know, you have to sort of keep uh, going at that. And the other uh, important issue, I think, is grieving. Um, that it is often that we aren't willing to make this important changes because we have to give up something and that we're going to have to grieve over giving that up, over the loss of it. And so how many of you feel like you have the capacity to grieve, which really means allow yourself to feel the feelings without getting caught up in them for too long? Is that... Is that possible? What what what's what's your experience? What do you what do you think grieving's about? Dan, go ahead. <laughs> I can't answer what I think grieving is about. It's just For way you. too big. But For you. what I can say is that I thought the purpose was to overcome it, go through this passage that there, it's no longer there, and there's this, for instance, a loss of family members, benign, ending with a benign acceptance that that person is no longer with me in, in this realm. And I don't think that's going to happen. I think that grief for me will always be there to touch from time to time, like it's just part of the fabric now. It's not a thing that I get past or get over. There are stages of acceptance, but there are still going to be moments when it will be fresh. Moments are more tolerable, not as long, but it's not something that goes away. It's permanent. Mm -hmm. And in accepting that, I can be with it. Higher tolerance to be with it, and it's not everything. And I I can be with it, not of it, all the time. Thank you. My experience of grief just um, and losing my husband and just the intensity is that it was this full spectrum, so alive experience of being alive that was completely the flip side of love. So it's like my intensity of feeling grief, I felt the transmutation of the... Um, and the other one was just, oh my gosh, I'm doing it. Like, this is grief. I remember saying that so deep. And I'm doing it, and I felt so much love. Like, you can't have that grief without the love. And I think as it translates to climate change, my love for this earth is so deep. I just weep and weep, but I'm still present. Like, I'm not dying from it. I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm doing it. But it feels alive, like so alive inside. Thank you. Colleen. Yes, uh, touching on the climate change issue and what's happening with the earth 
and the wildlife around us. You know, that's where I feel a lot of grief and very frequent. I mean, somebody mentioned that it's like every day an assault, you know, whether it's a dead animal on the road or, you know, people who don't seem to care. You know, they run their, run their cars or wastewater. And I just feel like it's constant. And uh, I don't know how to deal with it. And so I'm interested in understanding how these tools that, you know, we've been talking about, how do you deal with that as you drive by and see the dead animal? Or know that what's happening with the earth is hurting animals and plants. And, you know, it's every day. And so I am very grateful to be a part of this earth and happy to be here, but I don't still understand how you take that on mm-hmm. multiple times a day and still function. Thank you. Can I can I ask you a, a question? Can I go a little further? Is that all right? Can you sort of tell where 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 you feel that grief that in your body? Where where is it most present? Go ahead, give her give her the mic, Nan. I mean, I guess it is, you know, in my heart and just, you know, the images that I have of animals that are suffering or... Any place know, else habit, in your body? Do you, feel it, do you feel it any place else in your body? Can you just, just, just sort of do a scan and see if you feel anything? My stomach feels really tight at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, my head hurts. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Is there any place that right now feels pleasant in your body or neutral? Yeah, under the pillow. (laughs) Under the pillow. Can you just purposely put your attention there for a few moments? Mm -hmm. Sense that pleasant sensation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe go back again and touch the areas of your body that feel the most grief. And just Mm -hmm. go back and forth a little bit. Touch... The grief touch the pleasant sensation of your feet. Acts me. Okay. I, I guess you know I um, I feel like um, it does relax me, but I, I I wonder how then do you take that forward to do something mm-hmm. with it? How do you make a difference? So if you're relaxed, would you not engage in things? No, I would. Would you engage? Uh, would, would you do it any differently than you are now if you were aware of what was happening within you but were able to sort of also tap into the pleasant areas so you could sort of just relax a bit? Would, you, would anything different change in how you engage? Yeah, I think if I can um, feel a little bit calmer about it, then I am probably less likely to really withdraw and not, mm-hmm. you know, want to ignore the situation or keep myself away from it, I suppose. You wouldn't withdraw. Is there anything else beyond non-withdrawal you might be able to do, want to do, feel like doing? 
Well, I feel like when I'm I'm not, you know, withdrawing and and um, you know just being upset about it, that I am able to be more involved in things and. I'd like to be able to do more of that to, you know, really see the issues and know how hard and heartbreaking they are, but still be able to do something that hopefully is making a difference. Again, you know, the, the, the ability to go inward and just see where we're holding this and how we're holding it. And when we need to, we might need to sort of go to a pleasant area just to sort of relax, to to you know ourselves just to calm our mind and body just gives us more freedom more capacity to decide wise and skillful ways to to move forward um just something to think about the more we can do that um uh, and often in the midst of the greatest distress we can't so just give yourself some time give yourself some space and then try to come back to that when you can yeah thank you And I really appreciate your yes, thank your you. bringing it up and this question, and um, definitely want to explore before you know today just how to process all of this and uh, and and still want to make a difference. <clears throat> thank you for bringing that up. Let's make one. I saw one other comment. Then let's we'll, we'll just, just take one more. That's all right. If we'll go on, then we'll come back. That's okay. Uh, you, we got back no, there. Back there. Yeah, you asked okay. the <laughs> question about um, uh, what will we have to give up, and and I've been thinking about my my role in my organization and in the community, and um, it's sort of um, giving up. Uh, the, the the polite way of handling professional conversation. Um, we're not allowed, even in climate circles, to talk about emotion, um, to talk about grief, um, to talk about joy. Uh, really, we're allowed mm-hmm. to talk about solar panels. And, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know. Yep. Um, so how do I um, have the courage to be one of the rule breakers in the room to set a different kind of tone and a different kind of conversation where we can go back and forth between the grief? I live in a community that's been doing a lot of things for a long time, and we have a lot of good upon which we can build. And So we, we, we have the possibility of going back and forth between those two Two, two things to move us forward. Um. Would, if I can, ask, can I ask a question? Is that okay? Um, what would happen if, have you asked others if how they feel and whether anybody would be interested in sharing feelings and discussion about grief and pain? There are already some who have been talking about this for a while, but they're not given a place in the room. And so giving them a place in the room and making it, a, structuring it into what we're doing um, is, is kind of what I'm thinking about right now. Is, yeah, so there are others that I can, I can connect with and 
you can see a way maybe to mm-hmm. begin that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My sense is that in many organizations that I work with, that is exactly the issue, that there isn't, there, everybody's walled it off, uh, but that almost everyone wants to talk about it. And it's just a matter of providing the opportunity and inviting people in. Mm-hmm. And having skills in the room so that you don't right. go off the edge. You know? <laughs> so be gentle. That's what this is. Yeah. That's so what be, this is yeah. be gentle. Be, be, you know, take a small step have a conversation, but invite people into your experience mm-hmm. more than telling people what they should do or our organization should do, etc. Uh, it just gives, some people might just want to sit and observe for a while, you know, not share much, uh, etc. So just think about sharing your experience and seeing what unfolds. Mm-hmm. And And also keeping in mind just what we experienced here together when when you when you're feeling your pain uh individually how disconnected and when you talk and share oh this is really hard how that shared connection shifts the the whole energy field and there's a um it can it can not only process the the pain but feel more energy to respond even that much more skillfully. You, you, we experienced it here before, just in, in some triads or in, in, in talking together. It's like, oh, wow, somehow I feel a little bit better, a little bit lighter, just acknowledging what's going on inside. So not to um, uh, pre-qualify everyone and thinking, oh, no, can't do that, because they also are feeling what you're feeling how how could they not if they're they're motivated to do that work you could be the catalyst and uh, make sure that you're you can go inside to take that time to go inside even before you engage in those conversations and so you're aware of where you're holding it and how you're holding it and what's happening there and try to sort of just uh, calm your mind and body first is uh, a way because that was, again, as we talked about yesterday, that uh, equanimity is a, is a social experience in many ways. So the more your can be uh, uh, maintain that kind of resilience or that equanimity, the more others will be able to, and then they're more likely to share their grief. Otherwise, they're so frightened they'll just hold it out. Now, I, I think timing is real important in these situations. Um, there's, there's, there's always some kind of cost. There's always some kind of suffering going on, and and it comes to a head. And then there's a the shift to me is more of a paradigm shift, where all of a sudden everyone is on that boat across the river. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ernie. Yeah, I just wanted that, to make that comment. I think that that's such an important point. And uh, James and I were talking about this a number of times that. Um, if we so first of all, grieving is really important in the process, not only with climate change but with any distressing event um, uh, experience and just sort of watch yourself, notice how you grieve, are you allowing yourself time to grieve? Um, are you joining with others if that's possible to grieve with others um, when you do when you don't when you try to wall it off to deny it. 
um, uh, or sort of stuff it down in you, uh, that's only going to come up in other ways. Um, it might come up in a physical illness or ailment in some way. It's not going away. Um, so uh, be sure to, to take the time to grieve. And that it usually means it does take time. Again, remember, you're not going to necessarily eliminate the distress. We're not eliminating climate change now. So how do we live with the distress in ourselves in a way where we can actually stay uh, resilient um, and engaged? And that often just means continuing to use these skills to go inside, uh, touch, touch these um, feelings in a way, and hold them in a way, feel them in a way uh, that we can get a little bit of distance from uh, and observe ourselves from down the road at the right time. Um, uh, some other things that you could do is, just as we were hearing, join a support group or form a support group uh, where the focus is not on how to build better solar panels, but just sharing our feelings about what's going on. Uh, it, it's really that the social interaction aspect of it is so important, especially with very serious distressing issues uh, like climate change, but also community trauma of, of any kind, family traumas, etc. So the more you can do that, don't try to make any big changes when you're seriously grieving about something because you're often... Uh, not uh, not making wise and skillful decisions. So try to allow yourself time to to uh, calm your mind and, mind and body before you do that. Uh, but remember, it takes time. That's the real key, and it takes some often some uh, some a lot of self care, and just take the time for that self care, uh, uh, and uh, and do it in a social environment uh, it, the best, if, if that's possible, because you'll find that. People will share, et cetera. And just as James was saying and what you've all said, you'll often emerge out of that then. People will start to feel, let's, let's start to engage again. Holding the distress there all the time or often. Sometimes you can just, it'll go away. But when you think about climate change, it's not. So I want to take this one step further before lunch if we could. Um, first of all, let me back up. James and I have been wondering, does everybody understand what, what climate change is and how that's happening? Do we need to, would a climate change 101 thing help anyone? Is that important? Okay, this is going to be a, a 30 second. <laughs> Give me a By global migration due to water, drought, and how, and so we do this surface level thing in our country where we, oh, the terror, you know, it's it's radical, whatever, fill in the blank, Islam or whatever, Mm -hmm. and we're not looking enough at the migratory patterns that are due to climate change. Yeah. Well, social unrest all over the world is, uh, is in many cases directly or indirectly relating to climate change now. It's growing and growing. Uh, sort of a separate issue, but we've, our country has played a big role in a lot of things that come back to bite us that we sort of wall off and think it's not anything to do with us, our, our aggression and our uh, practices. So uh, there's a lot there uh, to think about. But let me just do, just so 
we want to make sure everybody's on the, the same page. So this is cli like climate change 101 that um, we're, uh, one way to think about this is, uh, do you remember the picture in 1972 that the astronauts took of the, the Earth floating all along alone in space? Really the first time, one of the first times we had this view of, of the Earth. It's called the blue marble because it just looked like a, mar a blue marble floating all along space. And one of the things to realize is there uh, was the first time we ever realized there was really no intake pipes coming into the Earth allowing us to bring other resources and species, etc., in from some other planet. You can visually see that, right? So whatever we got is all we got and all we're ever going to have in terms of re we damage those resources, uh, deplete them, etc. That's all we got. At the same time, there's no discharge pipes uh, that allow us to take our toxic and solid and molecular waste and send it out into outer space. There is no such thing as a way. Whatever we make, whatever we produce, stays right here in our biosphere or in our immediate atmosphere. That picture says it all. Uh, and one way you can think about what's how to act sustainably and think sustainably is just keep that picture in your mind all the time. How, if I buy this product, if I use this source of energy, if I do this kind of thing, what's going to be the impact on the blue marble? Because this is it. It's just floating in space. Um, I, it, it was the picture of sustainability to me when I first saw it. It's like, this says it all. Um, and so what's happened? Well, so we get solar radiation from the sun, uh, and there's a, so a mixture of greenhouse gases, as we call it, uh, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, uh, methane, and some others that sort of circle the, the, uh, uh, circle the Earth, or, uh, surround the Earth like a blanket. The solar radiation camp comes in. Some is reflected out away from the Earth by the, uh, uh, these greenhouse gases. Uh, uh, some of it hits the Earth's surface and is absorbed by soils, vegetation, a little bit in the, in the oceans, etc. And a bunch more is actually reflected back into outer space by white surfaces like um, the Arctic uh, snow, snow, snow and other sorts of things. Uh, and much of what is reflected back into outer space actually gets into outer space, but because of these greenhouse gases, uh, some of it is captured before it um, uh, is released. So the combination of the heat, the solar radiation that comes in to the Earth and goes out but is captured, this amount right here, has uh, occurred in a way that is, is at a level that has allowed, kept temperatures at a level that have allowed life to exist on Earth. There are a number of planets that we've studied where greenhouse gases are just really minimal, not much, and it's freezing cold, no life can exist. There's other places, other planets, where you have way more greenhouse gases, and it's so hot, life can, can't exist. So we call this the Goldilocks planet. I mean, we really, we're lucky. We are really lucky to have this kind of very delicate level of greenhouse gases. Uh, and historically, the way the scientists define it is we've had uh, about 280 parts per million carbon dioxide and others mixed with oxygen uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, and, and it's gone up and down a little bit, some, and the t uh, but that has allowed temperatures to remain relatively stable on Earth for 10,000, 20,000 years. Um, when the temperatures change, uh, sometimes there's a volcano 
or some other natural event where that puts more essentially greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So we might get some additional heating for a year or two, but it's temporary. And it goes back sometimes, you know, over millions of years, the Earth's uh, rotation around the sun changes slightly. That will get a little cooling, a little warming. But what we have done uh, in the last 150 years since the start of the Industrial Revolution, and especially, and I take responsibility for this in part, it's my generation, it's our generation, since World War II, um, we have dramatically increased the amount of, by about 35-40%, the amount of greenhouse gases. We've added a thicker blanket around the Earth, so there is more of the solar radiation that is um, being captured, more heat reduces the, uh, uh, the system's effect that uh, keep the earth warm, like I said, so you're melting ice and snow and uh, ice caps, which means there's less reflective capacity and you get more heat. Uh, so, and that's because of our use of, um, a large part is our use of fossil fuels, uh, coal, oil, uh, gas, etc., uh, that uh, basically we're digging up uh, the fossil fuels that were stored in the earth's uh, crust and re-releasing them into the atmosphere. Uh, we're ba- many scientists say climate change is basically reversing evolution. That the w- life was only possible on Earth and the Earth cooled enough for life to be possible when uh, plants uh, and animals became fossilized it becomes, uh, over millions and millions of years. Well, now we're digging them up and re-releasing them into the atmosphere. But it's not just fossil fuels. We also have to remember it is our consumption of materials and the way we manage the natural landscape that is a huge part of this because uh, uh, vegetation absorbs carbon dioxide, as we talked about the first day, and turns it into uh, oxygen uh, for us to breathe and others. Well, when we uh, destroy or degrade landscapes and vegetation, as well as estuaries and other areas that serve as, uh, that sequester carbon, less is able to be held and more gets released. So it's uh, cutting down forests. Um, it's uh, converting areas to development uh, that used to be uh, forest or wetlands and other sorts of areas. It's using our agricultural soils, uh, for, uh, running farms in ways that actually uh, release carbon from the soils rather than keeping it. So yes, fossil fuels are a huge part. That's the easiest to get a handle on. Uh, but it's also our land use practices, uh, which and all of that has to do with our consumption practices, our, our, our level of consumption, how we're doing it. Uh, many people think population growth is a big component, but it's important to realize that um, uh, we, with about five or I can't remember seven percent of the of the Earth's uh, population, we in the U.S. have contributed thirty to thirty-five percent of the emissions that are historically that have are destabilizing the climate. It's not been people in Africa that have way more population or in other parts of the world that are doing, are, are contributing that much. Um, so yes, population's a factor, um, but it's actually, it's more technology and development. This, is, this really has taken off since World War II when our technological and scientific prowess has been the greatest. Now, isn't that 
a kind of ironic situation. And what does that tell us? You know, it, it's not just, it, you know, we, yeah, we, we keep blaming the Chinese and all that. that it's been us and Western civilization in general that's the dominant uh, uh, driver of this. Go ahead. So one of the things I've been learning partially because I'm in an academic community is that one of the things that we will be grieving and are grieving as a society is all that, you know, sort of the American dream that we've built on this post-World War II ideals of, of um, the kinds of communities we can live in and what they're based on. Um, and, um, and even the idealism around um, food systems and, you know, things that people thought were really great ideas that have turned out not to be so good. Um, and so mourning the, the failure of, of that yeah. is, uh, is a part of what we're dealing with. Let me, let me also say that uh, what, what we also know, the best science and, and technology tells us, it's not that science technology is bad, it's going to be critical to solving this issue, just as it, it, it is that we have the capacity right now to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to levels where we can manage climate change. We're not going to stop it. But we have the capacity to do it now. Um, it is a political and social and cultural issue or dynamic that's in the way, which is why we're here, right? It's about us. It's about the way we think and the way our communities think, etc. So uh, that's what one of the things that gives me hope. We can do this. We can reduce climate change to manageable levels and then bring it back down in the next lifetime. I'm going to be gone by then. But, um, but uh, we have to make really fundamental, we have to g- get to the heart of the way we think about things and the way we're approaching things. It's about us humans. It's not about climate change. The, the burning fossil fuels and those development patterns are the, the end result of the manifestation of the way we have thought about the world, thought about ourselves, uh, managed ourselves, etc. It's not really the problem. Yeah, I mean, clearly we have to deal with greenhouse gases, but what's driving that? It's the way we perceive things, the way we respond. So that's that's the core. It's about us. Uh, And it's really going to be important. I want to do, there was one, somebody raised, yeah, Vanessa, one comment, and then I want to do one more exercise before lunch. Are you able to just briefly um, explain the argument that the other half has that climate change is not a reality? How do they scientifically state that? That's it's not the other half. Right, yeah. You mean, uh, it's, first of all, it's called dissociation. <laughs> you have to uh, wall it off in your head. You have to really... Uh, uh, just uh, really make make that go away. There is really no scientific support for that. Um, it, it, they're speaking to a particularly small. Yeah, uh, they're 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 talking to a particularly small group, and are talking to themselves. Yeah, well, they well, there is a group, and and we can talk about that after lunch a little more. But there is a, a group that believes that uh, humans cannot change the way the Earth uh, 
functions, that it's only God. Um, so there's that portion that they're talking to, that it, um, any way to take away responsibility. But when you, you, you gotta, the way I always approach it is to simply ask, well, what would a 35% increase in greenhouse gases, do you think that that would, what would be the effect of that? And ask for some response to that. Most of the time they don't even know that there's been a 35, I mean, they haven't got to any detail. It's just all cultural, it's all political if you will, it has really nothing to do with science, you know. Um, well, it's even worse. That, That's how it was before World War II. Yeah, yeah 1850s. We, yeah. The Earth goes through slight cooling trends and slight warming trends. We are actually at a solar minimum now, meaning it's a cooling period. The fact that it's warming in a cooling period suggests it's a lot worse than we thought. If we were in a warming period, it would really be way warmer already. And that is a scientific fact. When's the next warming period? Oh, they, they come in you know, 10,000 year, 5,000 year period. So, so, the, so that's, that's the, you know, the, the issue that it, no, I'm sorry, that's just not true. Um, and there's lots of research, lots of, you know, charts you can get on that kind of stuff. So um, one of the things that's important now, we're going to come back and talk about grieving more uh, this afternoon, but when you realize that climate change is happening and or the other events in your life are, that are distressing are happening, you're trying to stay grounded and centered. You're stabilizing your nervous system. You're trying to stay, you stay connected with other people. You're trying to uh, use these experiences to learn about yourself and others, to find new meaning and purpose, meaning it might be that I have to find a new purpose in my life just to deal with the distress of climate change. It's vital to stay connected to your core values to identify what they are, surface them, and continue to ask yourself, am I living out my core values or am I allowing this distress to uh, divert me from that? So in your handout, on the bottom page, there's a little chart that says the core values I want to live by in the midst of adversity. And what I'd like you to do is very quickly, and you can do more over lunch, Go through and circle and see if you can identify the top three values. Your top three values as how you would, that, that, that represent how you want to live your life even in the midst of adversity. Often, one way to do this is you go through this, you find the first six or eight or ten that you think are there. So do that, that's fine. Then go back through those six or eight or ten that you've identified and see if you can come up with your top three. Does everybody have one of those forms? Uh, you might see if Romy has one. Romy has one outside. I don't know what happened. Okay. Well, get me one too, um, if you can. Now. Sure. You do this exercise. What you might find is that we'll we'll do it now and and uh, and take a lunch. But uh, tomorrow or the next day, you might go back and redo this because it, you might realize your values are a little different.
or you'll have more depth to it. Um, so it's uh, something to consider. The question I have before you now is taking that distressing situation, for example, that we you were you brought up in your mind uh, a few minutes ago for that other exercise. Did you live out your core values in the midst of that situation? Um, or is there a way in which you could have lived out your core values a little more? And is there a way that staying tapped into your core values, aware of them, remembering them, surfacing them, could have helped you learn, use that experience to learn and grow and find new meaning? And so what I'd like to do, we only have 10 minutes left. What, let's just get into dyads and just very briefly. Thanks so much. Is there anybody else? Anybody else, else needing one of these? Get in, uh, just share in dyads what your core values are and if you have any insights into whether or not you lived out your core values in that distressing situation. If you didn't, would it have helped? Would it have made a difference in how you acted, how you perceived the situation? And could it have helped you learn and grow and find meaning by staying committed to and focused on your core values. So just in dyads, it's about 10 minutes. Well, it's a good discussion on values, yeah. Because out of that will come your, your actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's... I think we, let's do... No, I mean, uh, let's end at 12.30 or so and come back at, at 1.45. At, but say... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.